So what you're talking about? This is the postscript. Welcome to the postscript. Where we talk about posts mostly. And sometimes a script. <laughs> One singular script. Well, I wanted to tell you about something. I was in the north of Norway recently to visit family and stuff, which was nice. Your motherland. And I saw this really incredible play. It's kind of a mix between puppet theater and people. And it's an adaptation of Moby Dick. <laughs> As puppet theater? As puppet theater. But not like children's puppet theater. Oh yeah, the adult cool version of puppets. It's a collaboration between this puppet theatre in Northern Norway and Plexus Polaire, who I assume are a European company. It's kind of an international production. The director is Ingvild Aspeli. And it's this incredibly beautiful production that's really dark. Moby Dick's huge. You can't, like, adapt all of it into a play. So it kind of takes the aspects that are really about the existentialism and death. Yeah, I mean, it's a really rich book and you can take a lot out of it. And, like, there's only one human character, per se, Ishmael. The protagonist yeah, like, of the novel, which no, is surprisingly, like, he sort of disappears after the third chapter or something. Yeah. So he starts off talking about, you know, losing his sense of meaning in life, right, and choosing to go to sea as a in-between place between death and the living, right? And it follows with this kind of nihilistic existential dread about the sea and the darkness, and the sets are very dark, and the rest of the actors are puppets, so Ahab, they have him as a normal-sized puppet and as a gigantic-sized puppet. Oh, my God. Really kind of huge. Is that to, like, show his megalomania or whatever? Definitely. Yeah. Because he's crazily obsessed about hunting down Moby Dick. Like, they're hunting down whales, but this specific whale that took his leg, he's madly obsessed with. Yeah, I mean, that's so archetypal now. Like, even if you haven't read the book, mm. like, you've seen some sort of version of mm. that somewhere, like in Futurama or whatever. Like, you know Ahab wants to fucking kill that whale. And this is such a beautiful adaptation. They use a lot of um, projection and um, sound design. The scenography is often very sparse, it's often very dark. It has like few elements that kind of mold the scenery very well. And the puppets are really beautiful. And a lot of the time you have people like in completely black clothes controlling puppets from behind. And they use a lot of miniatures as well. They have kind of like a foot-long miniature version of the boat. The Pequod. And the first whale they encounter is kind of like a maybe three or four foot long whale, which is a lot bigger than the boat itself. Yeah. And they have this scene where they're hunting down the whale and there's like a baby whale following it as well. And it's kind of like a somber thing where you feel some of the uh, tension about like being on the waves. And they're kind of holding these small figures, the boats, and now and again they'll flip it yeah. so that it's as if you see it from above. They change perspectives. They do a lot of that sort of thing. And they manage to hook in this big whale and then strip the skin off it slowly while the baby whale is kind of looking at it. It's a very somber scene. That's some horrific shit. And it kind of mirrors one of the later scenes where they actually meet the Moby Dick whale, yeah. which is huge. I mean, it's probably two meters long and the boat looks so small in comparison and the cloth is torn up. It looks really ugly and nice. nasty and has this huge fucking mouth with loads of teeth and it just chews the boat to pieces. Super intense like that and the music's very escalated. And they also have a giant version of this puppet, yeah. which is larger than the scene itself. So you can only see parts of it. It kind of goes 
across just in profile and you just see the beginning of the face and the huge mouth and the eye which is gigantic and then it kind of crosses with the tail at the end awesome very sort of intense and terrifying and beautiful and you have these characters who are just like clothed in black and they just have skull faces and they're kind of walking around and this very darkly epic play it was absolutely amazing I wish I could have seen that. That sounds really awesome. Yeah. And I'm a huge Moby Dick fan too. Yeah. And I love puppet theater, like proper puppet theater and theater in general. This is one of the best things I've seen at all, really. It was amazing. (sighs) I really miss seeing shows in theater and stuff. Mm. It's been a while. I went actually to a sort of stand-up show just the other week. Oh, really? It was really good, actually. Where was that? That was at Surya Muria in Oslo. Yeah, right. That was dope. Good comedian? Very good. It was actually sort of like a multimedia project, that too. It was very, like, kind of strange and, and interesting. And, and also, like, not always funny. Always kind of sad and interesting, too. It mm. was very, very good, actually. Was it like a, a monologue about? Yeah, it was a one-man sort of show about his breakup, basically. Mm. It was by a Norwegian comic called Lars Berum, called uh, Amour Fatigue. The show is ostensibly sort of a tale about his breakup, and the red thread of it is the philosophy of Nietzsche. It was kind of laugh out loud funny at times. And it was also like super intense because the scene was like so tiny. There were probably like 30 people in the audience. So it was very like intimate too. Very good. Mm, That sounds nice. Yeah. It was nice to actually like see a show again. It's been a while. It definitely has. I'm not the biggest theater goer, but I do enjoy it. I do enjoy seeing some good shit on stage. I'd like to do it more. That's what I always feel. Yeah. Same. Same. Yeah. I mean, it can be quite expensive, but there's some places you can get like um, tickets that were meant for sponsors and they didn't show up and you can get those cheap. What I don't get is why don't we have more Punch and Judy shows in the street? (laughs) You know? Yeah. And back in the day, that was the good shit. Back in medieval times, you'd see like fucking uh, Punch and Judy shows in the street. Yeah, well, they didn't have reality television though, did they? No, but that was their reality television. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Quite (laughs) a similar scenario, I would think. Yeah. There was a lot of like interesting theater stuff like Mm. before the advent of like modern theater with like Shakespeare and and things. Because most of it was religious Mm. and allegorical Mm. and usually like connected to a certain town or locale or whatever. And often like put up by just the villagers in Europe and stuff. I find that kind of interesting. And you see like remnants of it now at like some religious festivals and stuff Mm. like mystery plays and like various forms of religious theater. But it's quite exotic to us these days, I think. Kind of losing our touch with that sort of deep religiosity of the past, which is good. (laughs) Yeah, probably. In in some sense, bad in others, I think. Did you ever read Neil Gaiman's Mr. Punch? I did not. I haven't read a lot of Neil Gaiman. It's a comic with Dave McKean, who did the Sandman covers. He's kind of illustrated the entire... Yeah, no, I haven't. I only read uh, American Gods. It's really good. I mean, it's extremely beautiful, of course. Uh, They use a lot of puppets that have been photographed, mixed with... Well, it's kind of a mixed media thing with some drawings and photographs and um, just really evocative. And this Punch puppet is very strong. It kind of mixes the story of Punch and Judy with this young boy's own kind of experience. And he goes to the beach and he sees like the the play of Punch and Judy. And it's quite a nice story. I think it's still one of my favorite game and... Just like the intersection between the visual and like the ideas that he often has. Yeah. I mean, like his most 
famous comic, I guess, would be Sandman, yeah, right? Definitely. And that definitely has that sort of gorgeous visually. I mean, it's kind of mixed, I think, because there's a lot of different people drawing it. Yeah, but at times, I think it's really beautiful. But I agree. definitely, it, like, varied. Yeah. I haven't actually read the whole thing, but I've gazed upon a lot of its mm. pages while visiting friends and stuff. Yeah, I read it ages ago and really liked it. Even a bunch of the stuff that maybe isn't the most beautifully drawn can still be very interesting, I think. Yeah, he is not a bad author. His appeal to me is sort of mixed, but he's entertaining, I think. He's always entertaining. Well, he's always interesting in a sense. Yeah. He plays with interesting ideas, and I like the way he uses myths and fairy tales, and he's very invested in that kind of arena. And, you know, it varies a bit project to project whether or not I like it so much. It's typically something that I like. Yeah. I like his fascination with gods and yeah. sort of mythical mm. figures. I think that's really interesting. I find that shit super interesting myself because there's so few like, what would you see, like local deities or minor gods and spirits and stuff in, in daily life, you'd think, but there is actually a lot of it still going on. And of course, a lot of it takes like different shapes and stuff now, like you worship like some fucking celebrity instead of maybe something else. But the mm. sort of innate human need to find these sort of idols has always been there. But of course, the sort of context is different. When Christianity took over for like paganism, you still worship a lot of the same stuff. You just call it different shit. It would be a saint instead of a god, right? Mm. Uh, and I feel like Neil Gaiman writes a lot about that kind of interconnectedness of gods and worship and humans. Yeah, and like myths and legends and how they kind of relate to, you know, modern storytelling. And yeah, yeah, how they relate and how they sort of morph and mm. transmogrify, mm. for sure. It's very interesting. I also saw a really good series. What was that? It's an HBO series called The White Lotus. And it's a miniseries, which I love because I love shorter series that I would convinced. And it's about this holiday resort in Hawaii and these like super privileged white people that come to stay. And it's it's interestingly structured because it's kind of like a reverse whodunit because you start off seeing a scene from the very end of the chronology where somebody's died. Don't know who. Don't know who? Don't, don't care. Don't know who. And then we go back in time and as we follow through it, you're kind of thinking, ah, this person or that person is the one who's going to die. Right. But it's a very funny show and it's got really good characters. It's beautifully filmed. One of the main characters is this hotel manager. He's kind of channeling this Basil Fawlty, John Cleese kind of character. He has this manic intensity to him. He kind of looks a bit like John Cleese as well. Funny man. Yeah, he's very funny. He has these very mischievous eyes. And... Probably more funny than John Cleese these days. Jesus Christ. Uh, he's well, a fucking grumpy asshole. Yeah, yeah, he's a very grumpy old man. That's true. And the characters uh, all around are really good. It managed to keep you on your toes. You're not always able to predict what's going to happen. But is it like crime serial? No, definitely not. It's funny, well-drawn drama that's very sumptuously filmed with a lot of, you know, interesting subtext. What's uh, like the time period? Is it like a period? Yeah, it's, it's uh, contemporary. Okay. Structurally, it has some of that whodunit stuff, but it's not like... You don't have a detective coming in and asking questions. and But it's very interesting because it keeps you a bit on your toes. You know, you're examining these people and thinking, that's going to that's gonna turn out bad, right? <laughs> this is not a good development. And, yeah. But that's more in the structure of the show, not so much in the genre of it. But very funny. Definitely, I think you should watch it. Yeah, I probably will. I've been watching another HBO show, actually. Yeah? Rewatching Carnivale. Oh, yeah. Car Carnivale. 
fuck, that show is really interesting in a lot of ways. I just fucking love Clancy Brown. He's such oh, yeah. an amazing actor. He's great in that. He has such gravitas that mm. it's kind of spellbinding in that show mm. and sort of in a really good ensemble cast of characters with a lot of good casting. And he's yeah. this evil preacher. Yeah, but he's also struggling with some morality. Like, there's apparently some sort of evil in him. Mm. Some big evil. But he's also, like, kind of grappling with it mm. and not knowing it. Um, it's very, very compelling. And it also has one of the most unlikable main characters I've ever seen in a show. He's kind of really boring and bland. Boring and rude and completely disinterested in anything that has to do with a sort of his path or duty or mm. friendship or mm. whatever. He's just super unlikable. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't recall him as being this unlikable, but on second viewing of this show, he's just fucking terrible. <laughs> but like not in the way that makes the show bad or anything. Mm. It's interesting that it has such a reluctant dude as mm. the main character. And of course, a lot of very interesting typecast characters as these sort of strange circus performers. Yeah, circus freaks, basically. Yeah, basically. And of course, Michael J. Anderson in probably his best part ever, I would say, as like an actor, as like the sort of leader of this carnival, this traveling show. Yeah, that's the the actor David Lynch uses a lot, isn't it? Yeah, he is the short person from the Black Lodge. Yeah, yeah. That He's... speaks backwards and, that's right. and dances funny. Apparently he had a sort of a mental breakdown in the period before uh, the season three of uh, Twin Peaks started. Uh, he started accusing David Lynch of doing some horrendous shit that was easily disproven. But it's sad because he's a great actor, actually. Mm. He has a lot of charm and yeah, charisma. Yeah, and yeah. he's really likable in the Very show. Very watchable, yeah. Very watchable. And he has like this twinkle in his eye mm. in the show. He's one of the great joys of this show, actually. Mm. And of course, it's famously like one of the most expensive HBO shows. The, the set design is mm. super gorgeous. Mm. All of this sort of period stuff from the 1920s. Mm. It's really nice. It's a great show that sort of got a botched ending or, it, well, it was canceled. So. Mm, yeah, the two seasons. Yeah, it didn't really get the send off it deserved mm. at all. And unlike Deadwood, there's like been no talk of a real like movie to mm. finish the or anything, even though it was really well received and had a lot of fans. It was just so expensive to produce. Mm. Yeah, I would like to go back and watch that show. It's been ages since I saw it. Yeah, I feel like that period of HBO was really good and had a lot of good shows that got cancelled. Yeah. Rome, mm. Deadwood, Carnivale. Yeah, I would say about Rome, like the first season is very good and then the second is pretty mixed. I don't know. I like the second season too. Yeah. I rewatched it a couple of years ago and I uh, like the second season more on the second view. Yeah. But definitely the first season is this standout and it's really good. I felt really, like really some of the casting and some of the structure and how they jumped a bit in history. There's a lot of things I like in the second season, but it's a lot more uneven than the first one. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, oh. it's a bit more of a mixed bag, but still very watchable in my opinion. Mm. Uh, the first season though is... It's excellent. Stellar. Yeah. And like as somebody who studied archaeology, it's also one of the most, not like historically correct in terms of the narrative of Julius Caesar and like mm. the characters around him, but it's very on point in terms of atmosphere of mm. Rome at that time. Mm. And like how they portray Rome as this really vibrant and colorful mm. place instead of, you know, like all these fucking white marbles that people mm. seem to think is very classical. Which is stupid, of course, because both the Greeks and the Romans painted their statuary. And uh, it really captures that vibe. Like, you really get the sense of Rome being this really exotic, interesting mm. place with just a lot of 
gods, a lot of mm. deities, a mm. lot of religion truly intertwined with daily life. Yeah. In a and way that's, I don't think I've seen portrayed as well anywhere else. Mm. I definitely, I would say it's probably my favorite like portrayal of Roman times on screen, I think. Yeah, like it shows a lot of the daily sacrifices you mm. did to the local gods mm. and deities and stuff, which were everywhere. And literally every street corner and every house had its own mm. god. Yeah. And it shows a lot of that stuff. Like when you think of Roman movies, like you think of the gladiator and like mm. these epic, like Spartacus mm. and Ben-Hur and mm. stuff like that, that doesn't really show the, the nitty gritty. Yeah, the daily life and yeah, stuff. Which is the stuff I really find fascinating mm. about the period. Mm. Of course, the great historical stuff is really interesting too, but that's often like always at the forefront instead of the stuff that really grounds it mm. in a way that makes you care. More, I think. I don't know if you played it, but I really liked those aspects also in Assassin's Creed I have, Odyssey. I haven't played any Assassin's Creed. It's set in the Greek time, so it's not the Roman stuff. I've been wanting to play that, though. I know that they do a lot of historical research. Of course, it's a lot of alternate reality stuff, a lot <laughs> of like fantasy and myth and stuff, too. But they do a lot of research that is also very period correct. Some of the stuff that's really great about it, though, is that, you know, it has all these sculptures in these buildings and they are painted as they would have been in contemporary times. And um, it looks really beautiful. And it's nice to see that stuff represented. You know, it's kind of heightened a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But really beautiful. And they do a lot of great work with like presenting the world. For example, you have these you have these mines where they're getting out marble. And in the cities you will have these sculpture workshops where you see these huge bricks of marbles and you'll see it in various stages as they're cutting it down. So you get a real feel for how they were actually working with the materials, like the life of the craftsman. There's a right. lot of things like that where they show the society in a visual way. Yeah, like you're so used to seeing all the finished stuff, especially when it's represented in the media, but even like in documentaries and mm, stuff. Yeah. It's usually focusing on the larger stuff mm. and the most extravagant stuff and the finished, polished things. Mm. But it doesn't really give you a sense of how society worked at the time. Mm. And it's kind of sad because it's a very interesting time period in terms of how society functioned. Definitely. And, you know, it's a fantasy action game. So most of the times you're just running around killing people. But it has a lot of these aspects that are really nice, I think. And it has a great voice cast as well. Like you can choose male or female. And the female um, version, Cassandra, you know, they chose people who are Greek. Nice. And they speak English with a Greek accent. It's just really good voice work. You really feel like, you know, the pronunciation of like the deities and the place names feels really grounded. And, you know, you have this big map. You can travel to Lesbos and to all these little islands. And yeah, you kind of feel like you're there. It's really nice. Yeah, I've been meaning to play that, even though I don't think Assassin's Creed, like as a game series, appeals to me a lot gameplay wise because it feels like it's regurgitating a lot of the same stuff over and over. But the window dressing seems really good. And honestly, as far as I know, that game in particular has gotten quite a lot of good reviews and, and stuff and is yep. quite well viewed in terms of the series. Yeah, definitely. I, would say. I mean, I played some of the original ones and then I got bored and they had the one in Egypt, which I didn't play. Yep. And then I picked up this specifically because, you know, as it got better reviews and, you know, gameplay wise, there's a lot of, it has kind of this loot the inventory system you're always getting new stuff and you're mixing it out which is kind of meaningless to me and the combat itself is pretty okay it's pretty satisfying yep. it has a few of these elements to the game that are really great though like 
there's this secret network of conspiracy people and you have this diagram of different people, but you don't know who they are. Yeah. But as you travel around, if, let's say you just randomly go around doing stuff, not following the main story, you sort of start to pick up bits and pieces. Some of it's connected to the main narrative as well. And you kind of learn who people are and you have to go and confront them and kill them. And gradually as you deconstruct this network, it, it's really, that's a really great part of the, the yeah. game. Uh, that seems interesting. Yeah. I know it's like... Um... That's a huge part of the lore of the game series, like these sort of hidden networks, like yeah. Illuminati and shit. Mm. But I, I'm also like really partial to having voice cast that sort of fits who they are supposed to represent. Mm. Uh, I actually wa watched Moana the other day, like yeah? the Disney movie. I never saw it. Uh, well, is the live action one or the? Uh, no, it's uh, the 2D animated one. Yeah, it's a really good Disney movie, in okay. my opinion, one of the best. And of course, the cast is a lot of them have like dialects of sort of Pacific Islanders mm. and stuff. And the reason I watched it actually is because I'm reading a book about the ocean and the first chapter is about sort of the Pacific Ocean. And I mm. just found it incredibly fascinating. All right. So I just wanted to get a little bit more immersed in yeah, that sort of visual, vibe. Uh... Yeah. And it uses so much of the iconography and the sort of visual expressions of Pacific Islanders in a way that's really well done. It's obviously a super like westernized version of it, but not so much as you might think it mm. could be. Like if they made it in the 90s, it would be way worse. <laughs> like Pocahontas and shit. That shit's terrible. Like the movies are still watchable, but the historicity and the sort of representational stuff is kind of garbage. Some say. Mm. But yeah, just a delightful movie that doesn't have any romance or anything. It's like this just very focused tale of adventure. Jermaine Clement also has a nice part in that movie. Oh yeah. He plays this uh, like giant evil bling obsessed crab that has <laughs> sings the song that is like it sounds a lot like david bowie okay it's just, it, it works very well oh i'd like to see that actually yeah you, you should watch it it's good like most people have probably seen it but i saw it for the first time and i found it really really watchable i do have a hard time with disney movies yeah i have a hard like there's a lot of singing that mm. i often feel like if the song isn't good enough then i it's just fucking it's very annoying, annoying. Mm. but yeah this movie actually has a couple of fucking bangers so, mm. yeah. yeah i guess robin williams in aladdin is very good as genie yeah now and again there's stuff i like but generally speaking I have much easier time watching deeply unpleasant and horrible movies. Are you saying you find it a bit unpleasant to watch well, Disney I, movies? I find I get really triggered, honestly. And I just want to cancel Disney. In other words, we should discuss some Disney movies in uh, this podcast. I'm not sure I could be very constructive. What would you say is the most unpleasant Disney movie? I don't really look at them independently as movies. They're more no. like a monstrous ooze. Monstrous. Uh, like a slime. Yeah. A lot of the singing I don't like, and often the way they represent characters and children, I find it to be extremely pandering, and I feel like they're almost always talking down to the audience in a way that feels very disrespectful and unpleasant. While I agree with everything you say, I still think they are extremely well made for the most part. Oh, absolutely. Like the, yeah. the handcraft is so good. Yeah, and, they're very uh, technically impressive, and there's a lot of things individually I could say that I like about them. Yeah, I don't know. Like, while all that is true, like, in this sort of post-meaning world, I mm. feel like there is space to watch these movies mm. and appreciate them, even though they have a lot of 
garbage shit about them. I certainly can watch mm. them and not feel like totally fucking offended mm. at the panderingness and the surface level goody two shoes uh, Disney you know, mm. horror shit. You know, him being like this fucking union hating fascist like guy mm. but at the same time he really did want to like fucking entertain people and, and make people have a good time and he certainly had an artistic sensibility my favorite disney film is probably still fantasia yeah fantasia is that's a really ambitious project yeah and it was his uh, kind of uh hot child like he's really invested in in making that well he really wanted to show that animation wasn't just for children yeah. it was just really like a good motive to mm. make an animation movie people love to talk trash about walt disney and i totally get it there is a lot of bad stuff about him there is certainly a lot of good stuff too like there's nuances to most things sure. most things to me like aside from the purely technical aspect i feel like his legacy on animation is kind of sad and annoying i feel like he's cemented so clearly in the ideas in our culture that it's a kid's thing and still now even though there are many examples of good animation films that aren't for kids be they gross or just you know more intellectually themed still you know it's so pervasive this idea of the, what disney movie is the cartoons right yeah but i would also say like especially after his death the disney corporation has become this sort of voracious impossible beast yeah. of a company yeah. that is so litigious mm. and horrible in so many business practices yeah that it's like when you have that on the bottom and you have this sort of child-friendly fantasy yeah, adventure yeah, yeah. shit on top, it's really unseemly. And to me, it's kind of perverse. Really. Yeah, it is kind of perverse. I agree. But at the same time, there's a lot of good stuff about the movies. But uh, I wouldn't say I watch a lot of it. I have a hard time with sentimentality, like American sentimental aspects of cinema. I find it really difficult. I mean, there are good American sentimental movies, but they are generally, they have some level of real human warmth. Well, I prefer the word sentiment. There can be good sentiment, right? But when it becomes sentimental, it to me, it becomes squishy and very difficult yeah, to I, I sort digest. Of, I sort of agree. Like at the same time, you have movies like... Uh, a Christmas story or like, like John Hughes movies. They, they're often kind of sentimental, but they have... Well, they're a bit of, nostalgic. Like yeah, they're, they're, kind they're of, nostalgic. Um, like that's that's what I mean. Like mm. sentimental is sort of a bad word because mm. it, it's almost exclusively used in a pejorative sense these days. I do feel there are like movies that are kind of sentimental, but still like work very well because they have just a lot of heart. Like The Sandlot, for instance. The, the what? The Sandlot. What? It's a baseball movie, like set in the 50s. Really just a heartwarming, great mm. coming of age, like childhood friendship movie. That's really good, but also like kind of sentimental, but not in a bad way. Never saw it. I guess I feel there's such a strong disconnect to the real world. It feels often disingenuous. That's my problem. Like, you know, you can have good drama that does almost the same thing. I have the same problem with soap opera. Often like the emotional journeys or the emotional beats, they feel disingenuous. I feel like, I'm being talked at by this really obnoxious, lying asshole. Yeah, I get what you mean. Like, on some sense, it's like they're trying to pull the wool over your eyes. And so trying to tell you fabrications in this pandering way. It, it, yeah, it's also so patronizing, yeah. right? I'm very sensitive to that specific aspect of filmic language. It just really turns me off. Very you should strongly. make a movie about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I really like, you know, one of my best examples for this kind of thing, at least in terms of soap opera, is um, Mike Lee's All or Nothing, which is an amazingly good movie. I really I like Mike Lee in general, but that's probably my favorite one. 
and it's almost like an episode of EastEnders. There's not too much plot, there's no real humour as such. You've got characters and you've got situations, and I mean there is a thing that evolves like in terms of the narrative, and it's really just the same setting as the EastEnders soap opera, which I can't watch, it makes me really angry. <laughs> and, but it's fucking genius, it's so well acted, it's so well played, it's so believable in a sense. Okay. And just looking at those two things next to each other makes it really clear, to me at least, the difference between like actually dealing with humans and feelings and relations and just this kind of obnoxious, patronising swamp of lies. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's such a romanticism to it. Everything is dramatic, bold or sentimental or whatever. It's like a lot of romanced literature from mm. the early 19th century is kind of terrible i know victor hugo is very like lauded but mm. reading him i find it like a bit too sentimental for my taste mm. like I it's never read very it. like you have these sort of very two-dimensional like it's kind of bad like criticizing literature at that time because it was sort of evolving as an art mm. form but a lot of the characters feel paper thin mm. and like are just like the penitent criminal or like the bad guy and there's also the, like, like this sense of christian morality that is very pervasive mm -hmm. in it, that I find kind of, I don't know, I find it distasteful. But that is a good point, because there is often a kind of morality in sentimental narratives that is very simplistic and very judgmental as well. Yeah, it's moralistic. That's what I really dislike. It's very black and white. Yeah. And its inclusiveness often feels, you know, tacked on and doesn't really examine anything. Yeah, I agree. It's like the moralism of Charles Dickens is one of his worst aspects i think mm. but of course he does have really good moments of nuance and stuff and he has a lot of good qualities about his writings mm. but when he starts with the sort of christian morality pandering shit it's easily the stuff i dislike the most about mm. his books and also the sentimentality which is tied into the whole christian thing mm. i think mm. of like penitence and living a good pure life being a good young christian woman mm. there's aspects of like a very binary idea of the world like either you have one or the other like i feel that kind of doesn't gel with me at all like the... no but in dickens it's sort of intermixed with a lot of very interesting and non-binary characters yeah. so i agree with it's that. kind of strange mm. actually there's a lot of stuff that's delightful about yeah I, I mean of course his most interesting characters are always like the ones are like morally dubious yeah, yeah, or yeah. weird yeah. often very likable yeah, yeah it's, it's not like the big heroes usually although i guess david copperfield and stuff isn't too bad it's, mm. it's kind of interesting yeah not a huge fan of the sentimental romance literature it can be kind of terrible i haven't read so much romance literature well most of it is literally dross and most of the worst shit has been forgotten so we're stuck with pretty much the good stuff and most of it is well it depends like some of it is really good like jane austen for instance mm. is very good and the bronte sisters mm. very very good stuff yeah i guess i never really did a deep dive into this stuff you should read like the classic yeah. austen novels i yeah. think oh, she's pretty funny right she's really funny like mm. she's, she's she's funny in the way of like pg woodhouse mm. or like stephen fry it's like this quintessential british wit yeah. That is so fantastically delightful. Mm. And it's so well written. Mm. Like the language is beautiful. Like mm. so beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I like that stuff. Yeah, you mm. should totally read that. And the Bronte sisters also have their own charm. Very beautiful language. And, and a lot of it is super funny. Some of it is very dramatic. Mm. In a sort of good way. Yeah, I can like that kind of stuff. I guess uh, romanticism 
mixed with other things is what I've read more like Frankenstein has those aspects and I guess you could say Tolkien also has some of those aspects um, yeah those purely romantic novels I've never really but like I like when people take stuff that's maybe getting a bit old and doing something interesting with it mm. I saw a movie that I've been meaning to see for a long while mm. and it's quite famous like Knives Out yeah 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 it's good <laughs> uh because that takes a lot of the whodunit stuff and it doesn't like reinvent it mm. but it uses it in a way that's just eminently watchable yeah it keeps you on your toes a bit yeah quite a, like interestingly plotted yeah but it's not like trying to fucking reinvent the wheel yeah but it takes the sort of queer and strange and sort of funny characters mm. of like uh, the clue movies and stuff mm. like that and mm. does it in a really interesting way and i I love Daniel Craig as mm. the Benoit Blanc or whatever <laughs> yeah. stupid ass name. Yeah. Like he's he's really good with that over the top southern accent. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. He, he's good with accents. One of the things it does really well is it twists and turns your expectations with the characters, like where you place your alliances and what you think of people. Kind of switches around quite a bit in a, in a good way. Yeah, because like what you talked about earlier with White Lotus, you sort of mm. think you have people pegged at times, mm. and it's like mm. it's usually not like you kind of right, but mm. you're kind of wrong in mm. a sense, and it's very like kind of satisfying in the yeah. way it all sort of plays out. Mm. And uh, yeah, I really like that, and and I'm super happy that you're doing a sequel in the sort of vein of Poirot where you sort of take the investigator yeah. and the rest is new like there's a new case mm. new characters mm. so I think that could be really interesting yeah those new Poirot films I haven't seen them but they look pretty bad to me they're terrible I don't want to touch them it's not David Sachet I'm not fucking in he's he, great he is Poirot yeah. as far as I'm concerned as far as I'm concerned yeah he's really good I'm not saying that to be grumpy. Like the new movies just look terrible. Like I saw the trailers and stuff, yeah. and I just knew that like the vibe is yeah, it feels weird. It's sort of too action focused in a way. Mm. Like it's yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen it, so I shouldn't no. really be judging. No, but. I haven't seen it either. I just get the feeling that the vibes off. But who knows? Maybe the trailer lied. Well, like, why remake that? It's so well made to mm. begin with, like that. Porn yeah, series. Um, true. But remakes always interesting. I agree. Like um, at a certain point, but at least do something. It's kind of stupid to talk too much about a movie mm. much, really, but I feel like sometimes you can judge a book by its cover mm. because usually books are created to give you an idea of what it is by its cover. Mm. And the same with movies. Of course, sometimes people make terrible trailers for good movies and stuff. But, but what's always interesting about an adaptation, I think, is whether it's a good or bad piece the gaze or like the way it deals with its subtext there's always something interesting in terms of if you're invested in in like the story itself then seeing the different ways it, it's used and yeah well there is sort of a necessary intertextuality mm. about it you sort of have to mm. relate yourself to the previous mm. thing in the franchise or whatever mm. that is always interesting on mm. some level for sure there's so many terrible sequels and so many terrible revamps and reboots and new yeah, fucks. You could say that. But, for example, I'm really into uh, Dracula movies. And Nosferatu, it's been like adapted so many times. There's been a lot of good Dracula movies, too, There's though. been a lot of good ones. And a lot of, you know, maybe not so good, but kind of interesting films as well. And some parody ones. Yeah. Some obscure ones that I really like. The base story is good. It's got a lot of visual elements. Yeah. And, and you, like, can, you can easily put your own spin on it. That's right. Yeah. That's what I really like about it. Also, like, a lot of easy, interesting uh, films about Jesus Christ, like, either following directly or just adapting, like... Speaking of Jesus Christ, what do you think about the, the Passion of the Christ? I think The Passion of the Christ is going to be a really interesting episode for our Unpleasant Movies podcast. 
So I agree that that would be a really good episode, but mm. I also think we should might consider doing Apocalypto. Yeah. I've been meaning to watch that in relation yeah. to, because I'm reading a lot of South American history stuff, mm. and it's interesting yeah. in the context of the way the production went about. Yeah. I mean, like, the things that are great about that film, like production-wise and the costumes and just the visual... The ambition feeling. of it is also... Well, the like... ambition of it is unmixed because the guy who made it is, is a bit of a lunatic. Yeah, but that's <laughs> sort, kind of what I find fascinating about that and The Passion of the Christ. Yeah. It's sort of made by a megalomaniac. A megalomania that is a pretty good director. So. Yeah, yeah, he's he kind of yeah. I got a lot of mixed feelings about him. Um, Same, I, for sure. His dedication is definitely there, and he has a lot of good ideas. Like when he represents the culture, he goes all in in terms of the visual aspects and, and the, you language know, the language, aspects, yeah. right? He's willing to take like some very serious risks mm. when it comes to those things, like. He has some like serious auteur mm. ambition in terms of like, no, I want them to only speak Aramaic yeah. or whatever. That, and that's great. But there's also, in terms of representation, he's not so good. No, no. I mean, the guy is probably racist and it kind of shines through. Yep. <laughs> so. And he also has this sense of superior Christian yeah. morality. Yeah, which is not great, nope. I think. But be that as it may, they are interesting movies. and Definitely interesting. Absolutely worth talking about. I'm not sure if we mentioned it before, but I had this idea that we'd try and examine a couple of unpleasant movies that I personally don't think work very well. And why that is, uh, I was thinking of a Serbian film and The Passion of the Christ. It's yep. two, you know, films that have a lot of ambition and production-wise, you know, there's a lot of intention and a lot of choices that's very, very interesting. A lot of hard work. Yeah, and I just don't think they managed to do the things that they ought to do for it to be a good movie. Yeah. And why that is. I think that's well worth talking about. I think even bad movies, mediocre movies, I think you can learn something and gauge something from yeah. all kinds of movies. I think it also would be an interesting discussion in terms of exploring the idea of the unpleasant and what's good and bad about using it as a tool. Uh, yeah, because what is good unpleasant? What is yeah. bad unpleasant? Mm. I mean, you and I certainly have our own opinions about mm. that, but it's worth exploring why unpleasant sometimes doesn't work mm. and that's equally as interesting to me mm. yeah but yeah i think that's probably it for this time this day yeah so uh thanks for listening and bearing with our gibberish and we will probably catch you next next episode when we talk about eraser it yeah if you want to get in touch with us send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protomail.com oh you wish or check out our instagram or list on movie and goodreads where we got movies and books that we recommend you look into music for this episode was made by umulium that's yuskani and sarogor and the artwork was made by me thomas Simpson-Bambra. it certainly was and with that we'd like to thank you very much yes. indeed for listening to our gibberish for sure and we extend our warmest wishes for your well-being and hope to see you again or yes. hope for you to listen to us again <laughs> Or however that works in the podcast form. Exactly. So, goodbye. Bye-bye.